This is an ASCII Live media production for the Manly Warringah Sea Eagles official podcast channel. G'day and welcome to the Sea Eagles Community Corner podcast, hosted by Sea Eagles General Manager of Community, Kelly Petrovich, along with Justine Gordon, CEO of the Burdekin Association. Based here on the northern beaches, the Burdekin Association is a proud community partner of the Manly Warringah Sea Eagles. Each week, Kelly and Justine will be joined by different guests covering some amazing things happening in the community. The Sea Eagles Community Corner podcast is proudly presented by Sea Eagles major partner, URM. Now, over to Kelly and Justine. Welcome to the Sea Eagles Community Corner. Justine, thanks again for joining me today. Now, today's a very special episode. We're going to take a a look inside the infamous NRL bubble. Not just any bubble, but the Sea Eagles player bubble. Now, we may not have a player with us today, but we are talking to JB, who is our general manager of football and essentially the glue that holds everything together within our football department, including keeping Des in check. Now, John joins us from Sea Eagles HQ and he's dialing in remotely. John, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Kel. Justine, thanks for having me. So in your words, what is your role and what do you most enjoy about it? Well, Kel, you probably hit the nail on the head when you use the word glue. I like to think that uh, the role of a football manager is probably around ensuring that that connectivity between departments is always maintained, regardless of what's going on on and off the field. You're basically the link between the football department and the rest of the club. So departments like community, sponsorship, membership, uh, but also with the players and their families and and staff and their families. And just to ensure that the day-to-day operational stuff is happening and working smoothly. Uh, look, probably doesn't end and doesn't start anywhere. It's it's a bit of a jack of all trades. You kind of just fill the holes where you find them. It can be very different at different venues as well, different clubs. It can mean different things for the same title. And there's always that pull between the necessary operational stuff day to day and the overarching strategy. But, you know, if you work on time management, you can generally get through with everything. It's a pretty fortunate role as well uh, for someone who was a park footballer to be involved in professional sport and to have that day-to-day engagement with professional athletes and the coaching staff and people like yourself is a real privilege. JB, it's Justine here. Explain to me a little bit more with an example. What would you do on a game day? Well, it's a little bit different now, Justine. I don't know how much we're looking to delve into what a game day looks like currently, but a normal, in inverted commas, game day would be just ensuring that players and their families are looked after that uh, everybody knows where they need to be and when. Uh, If we are travelling, it might be arrangement of flights and uh, pre-COVID that would also involve accommodation. Buses at both ends, we might need training venues, it's meals, it's coordination of who's travelling and who's not. Uh, sometimes that staff will travel with the group. We may have uh, some players in rehab back here that require some form of treatment later in the week after the actual bulk of the playing group and football staff have left. So it could be bringing people over late in the piece uh, to join just for the game day role. It's, it's wide and varied, as I said, but it's basically just to ensure that everyone's in the right place at the right time and is in the right headspace to perform. Thanks, JB. So you said that, you know, pre-COVID, what does your day now look like, game day during COVID? There's a huge amount of accountability around everything that we do day to day now. 
So the beginning of a game day now would be more around ensuring that everybody in the bubble, there's and there's 55 of us currently, 36 players and 19 staff, have filled in the appropriate electronic apps and responded to questions around their wellness, around their temperature, around their whereabouts for the last 24 hours. We have like a, let's call it a date stamp that comes up on your on your phone uh, to notify you that you've completed uh, your relevant questions correctly. And then on arrival at the ground, you have to show it through a uh, an area that's called the, the clean zone. And when you're entering that clean zone, you have your temperature taken again. You show your app to say, yes, I've successfully completed my whereabouts and wellness within the last 24 hours. You walk through a shoe cleaning mechanism, you wash your hands. It's a very thorough process and it's something that we actually do here every day at training as well. If we move training venues, you know, for example, if we do a captain's run at Lotto Land, our home ground, we have to do it all again there. So it's really just around that high level of accountability that the game has, in particular to the state government, so that we can continue to play. So JB, there was a, a day some time ago where I, from afar at Warrywood Square, spotted you or actually it was more your shiny legs from a distance and I stalked up behind you and, and gave your legs just a, just a rub. I hadn't seen you in a while. Um, do many people just come up to you and, and kind of give you a stroke there? Uh, Justine? No, they don't. Perhaps my wife, but uh, you're the only other person I know that does that. And yeah, it was a little unusual given that I was in a shopping centre. Okay, enough about JB's legs. I think we're here to talk today, obviously, and take people through the journey of the COVID-19 and our Sea Eagles NRL bubble. So, JB, just thinking back, March, when rugby league was suspended, how did the coaching department and playing group respond to this? It's a good question, Kel. I think, um, firstly, we were extremely disappointed. Obviously, after doing a a 17-week pre-season. We'd just beaten the Premiers that weekend. We felt very confident about the hard work that we had put into the, the previous four, four and a half months. And as I said, the players had really put their best foot forward. We'd been competitive against Melbourne the week before and then we got on top of the Roosters and had won. Actually, that's the first venue we played in front of no crowds. That has its own flavour, I can assure you. So I guess we just then proceeded with the cards we were dealt and we just put a plan in place to move forward. Take us through that plan. I mean, I know there was a lot uh, a lot of ownership that had to be put on the players in terms of uh, and accountability, I guess, of, um, of keeping up their fitness and none of us were sure at that point in time how long this was going to be suspended for. So just talk us through a little bit about some of that, the plans that you guys put in place and um, to ensure that the guys could continue to train and, um, and make sure that I guess there wasn't going to be too much uh, loss during that stand down period. We met collectively as a staff early in that week following the announcement that the game would be suspended and we were receiving information, mostly uh, Des and I, on afternoon teleconferences um, and obviously our CEO Stephen Humphreys was also in those sometimes with us but sometimes on a CEO uh, only call and they were just providing us guidance and, and the way forward. We eventually, uh, if memory serves me correctly, I think it was five weeks we worked remotely. So in that first week, we put a plan in place immediately. Uh, most clubs and us included work from an athlete management system, which is an electronic way of communicating with the players. And we're no different. So we put some programming on that platform uh, and put together, we had some meetings with our performance department and coaching staff. We mapped out what a week would look like ideally. We put programs together, we supplied them all and we brought the players in in, uh, in groups of five at the back end of the week and 
we basically had a process whereby we would meet with them, uh, explain what we had had been informed, told them about the platform that we were going to utilise, ensured that we had regular touch points, sent them over to the gymnasium to grab equipment for themselves to take home and they jumped in their cars and drove off. We also delivered some of the more, let's say, bigger equipment to various households by the back end of that week so that they had bikes and rowers and uh, ski ergs and things like that to do some cardio-based things and put a plan in place that way. And we just worked with regular touch points from performance, from coaching. Uh, the coaches were allocated you know, a portion of the playing group each to maintain regular contact with we used zoom uh, to communicate and to talk whatsapp together as a group regular emails text messages phone calls and just kept in contact that way the players were responsible for themselves and i think at every club you work really hard to build a, a culture of professionalism a culture of accountability to be fair our players handled that really well they took it upon themselves they looked after each other uh, they looked after themselves they uh, got very competitive so you know the performance staff put things together to make it competitive and people were reporting their times for a particular activity or their achievements for a particular um, test we maintain that sort of competitive nature through that way the start of lockdown now seems like it was years ago but it was really i suppose only four months ago was there a period of time where the players were not training or was their engagement in training at kind of the same hours? Did they come in as much as they were before COVID hit? So Justine, during that five weeks, no one came in here at all and they all operated from their own environments. We provided information where we recommended different venues that were well maintained, that didn't have large members of the public so they could essentially train in isolation. There was no set times. We offered a platform in the form of an electronic schedule that they could look at where they could space their training sessions accordingly. Different people had different commitments with family and um, with part-time jobs and things like that. So we just allowed them to do their training wherever they could. And then on return, I think it was the first week in May, maybe May 5, we had a progressive return. So that entire first week was small group training, uh, no contact. We built in over the first seven days until we got a full contact session, if memory serves me correctly, in about the middle of the second week of training. And that was the first time we had the full squad together. I know that um, as you know, leading the Burdekin Association where I work, we were updating protocols and making decisions that changed every 24 hours based on the advice we had a and coordinating our team, you know, at, at work was, was hard enough. I, I can't imagine the amount of work that was put in in those initial days to get everything on track and aligned and, and everybody kind of doing what they needed to do. Was that pretty full on? Yeah, look, it definitely was. I think as it has for many families well beyond rugby league and well beyond Australia, it's um it certainly has taken its toll. But I think that the majority of people here in this organisation and certainly around us consider ourselves quite fortunate that we're all happy and healthy. We're able to engage, you know, in our chosen lives, uh, which is much more fortunate than many others. Certainly the collective group here, there's a strong feeling around that and that we sense that other people are certainly less fortunate than us. And we try to maintain that strength of mindset and know that uh, the players are, are there to deliver a product more broadly for the public and, and give them something to enjoy. Fantastic. That's great. Now, lockdown enabled all of us to, to kind of do different things or experience life in a very different way. I know for me, being mum of three kids, the, the ability to just slow down and not have to, to drive them to six different sports during the week was actually kind of really insightful and, and wanted 
I really wanted to be able to slow down in life at, now that after the lockdown, I'm certainly as busy as I am. But for you in lockdown personally, did you reflect on anything or do anything in particular during that time that, that you enjoyed? Justin, you literally read out what I felt. Like you, uh, we have two girls uh, who are extraordinarily busy in their uh, sporting and social lives. It was just a time to reconnect. It was a time that we were fortunate enough to actually spend some time with each other. We, we went on walks. We've only been in Sydney sort of a year and a half now. We've been living in Canberra primarily prior to that. So the girls took up surfing. Uh, it's something that I grew up with. So we were able to do that together. That was a really enjoyable experience before we got placed in lockdown and I was no longer able to do it. But probably the primary thing that, that I did was with my wife. We, we started our own podcast. For about a year and a half, we've been discussing the idea around putting together a podcast called Sports Parenthood. Uh, again, along the lines of, of what you just mentioned and really what it was just to elicit some conversations with other parents, with coaches, administrators, athletes, and talk to them about their journeys through being young or working with children in sport and seeking advice on best practice, what to do, uh, what not to do, hearing people's stories and just being able to connect and relate to them and having some time together with my wife. We put that together and we launched it about five weeks ago. So that's probably where a lot of my time was spent when I wasn't working. JB. I was just about to ask some more questions, but I just heard the siren. So that's uh, the halftime siren now, and we're going to listen to a message from our sponsors, and then we'll be back to talk more with JB and the NRL Sea Eagles bubble. No problems at all. The Manly Warringah Sea Eagles thank our major partner, United Resource Management, for their ongoing support. Season 2020 is URM's 24th consecutive year sponsoring the Sea Eagles, and they are also big supporters of communities right across Australia. The Seagulls also thank Premier Partners, Shore and Partners Financial Services, Lotto Land, and all corporate partners of the club. For a full list of Seagulls corporate partners, head to seagulls.com.au. All right, we're back for the second half. Now, JB, before our break, uh, you were talking about a podcast that you and your wife had put together. It sounds fascinating and I'm intrigued by it. Where would I find it? Because I struggle to find things technologically. So what's the easiest way for me to find that podcast? I'm a bit like you, Justine. It's, uh, yeah, technology escapes me. However, uh, it's very easy to find. It's on all platforms where people would normally seek podcasts. In, in your Apple iPhone, you just go to the podcast app or type in pod in the search at the top of your phone, open it up, and you type in the word sports parenthood, one word, and it should come up. Right. Well, I think I might have to have a listen to that because I know, yeah, three kids. 10 million sports. I even actually said to my son at the end of COVID, he does three sports. And I said, do, do you think you really want to keep doing three sports? And he looked at me and went, yeah. And I'm like, okay, then that's great. Wonderful. Uh, you'll find the advice, Justine, from the experts is without a shadow of a doubt that the more wide and varied their sporting experience is when they're young, the more likely they are to continue into adult life with various forms of exercise and sport. And if they choose sport as a vocation, um, they're more likely to succeed. I think also the thing for me with sport and particularly team sport, two things, sport for a mental health kind of well-being capacity is, is just crucial. But secondly, team sport for young men can really hold them in in a really positive kind of framework and a, and a positive they've got they've got their friends they've got you know that team culture that commitment all of that kind of stuff going on so as hard as it is for me to get up on a Sunday morning at 7:30 a.m in the pouring rain it's worth it 
without a shadow of a doubt, you are correct. And, and that is a, a mental health perspective from kids, you know, as young as five and six right through to adults. It's males and females. And uh, I know on the weekend, and I've got to give Northern Beaches Council a wrap here, with the rain that was coming, we foresaw that there was definitely not going to be any sport. And uh, for them to allow it to go ahead after what we had, uh, I think was a really positive experience for all the kids. And it reminded me certainly of when we were younger. We used to play on those wet days that now modern councils cancel the venues. But, you know, it was great to see them playing in the mud and the rain and and having a kick around and, and tackling if you're watching rugby or rugby league so we feel very fortunate so a shout out to northern beaches council there because it was a really fantastic thing for the kids to do and just to clarify with your mental health state and well-being associated with being able to play team sport and the associated culture and the friendships that you develop and i couldn't agree more and i know inside myself when i played park football for many years it sounds corny but i felt like i was a better person that i i was able to have that weekly release and you know and have a good time doing it and do it with your mates as you said and really sport that's all it's about even at this level it's about the friendships that you develop and the, the depth of the relationships and the willingness to to go into battle together now, JB, back to the the journey that um, that you've been taking us on throughout COVID season suspension, guys going off, um, stood down for five weeks. You mentioned they came back at the beginning of May. So just on that, and I guess to your point around the mental health side of things, when the guys came back to training, did you did you see a change or a difference in in their mental state of mind? I know training is much better, even for me personally. You know, group training, training with people to push you on and egg you on. Um, did you see a difference in in the playing group when they returned back after that five weeks? There was definitely a, a willingness that sometimes. Certainly at the back end of a long pre-season kill, it can become a bit Groundhog Day. It's really hard work. It's very hard to explain to the broader public how these guys are feeling after 16, 17 weeks of really being effectively running to the ground. We put a really big load into them to prepare them for the season ahead. And so to have that break and then to see the, the refreshed mindset, the willingness to rip in, the enjoyment of being back in a collective group um, was definitely, definitely there. And to be fair to the group, after five weeks, you're not certain um, what you're going to get back. Obviously, different people, as I said earlier, had different commitments with family, with part-time work, etc. So the training opportunities were limited for some, but everybody really looked after themselves well. And I think that's a credit to the culture that we have here and that we've developed. And that, that sort of two to three week period that we had to re-prepare for another game was sufficient because they looked after themselves so well when they were away. I don't usually like to name names, but um, is there anyone that you want to shout out to that came back um, the fittest? And I guess, uh, you know, for our listeners, a bit of insight as to maybe who didn't come back so fit and who maybe spent too much time on the couch um, eating things they shouldn't have eaten. I don't want to disappoint you, but honestly, out of the squad, everybody came back in at least reasonable condition and had looked after themselves to a point. And that was something that we discussed right from the get-go. And when we met before they broke, we, we talked to them about not wasting the effort and the hard work that they'd put into the previous four months. And we pushed them hard on, on saying the work that you do over the coming weeks is what's going to shape your year. And they all took it on board. So to be fair, collectively, they came back fantastically. So there's no one that I can pinpoint on a negative light. If I was to pinpoint someone positively, he's a young squad member and, and he's had his challenges and he came back in good nick and his football's proving it and, and that's Moses Sully. He really had a dig when he was away and came back in what I would say was at least as good, if not better nick, than when he left. 
That's fantastic. Okay, so I guess we're back at training. There was a 40-page document that you guys had to get your heads around from the NRL and that had a, a bunch of biosecurity rules and guidelines that had been put in place to allow us to be able to, to come back into training and to uh, obviously for NRL season to recommence. So talk to us a bit about some of those protocols that have been put into place and I guess how life was different this time around coming back. It's been a journey. It was a 40-page document, but the document itself changed day in, day out. That made it a little bit hard and it's certainly hard to communicate to 55 people regularly around updates. You do get a face-to-face audience from time to time, but you also want to put things in writing so that they have the chance to review that. You know, when you're sending the squad 10 text messages a day around other things, uh, sometimes they they can just get flicked through to the keeper. So we've just looked at different mediums to keep those regular touch points and communication uh, with updates. A day here changed significantly. There's fencing around our field. There's fencing around what we call a dojo, which encompasses the player's locker room, an area where they do all their preparation, video, kitchen, showers and bathrooms. And we use that as our assessment point of a morning. So on arrival every day, every player has to fill in the app. And at one point, that was three apps before the NRL were able to combine all of their materials into one because it takes a lot to build an app where people are actually typing in responses. It was filling in three apps and that is everything. It's your temperature, it's your wellness, it's your soreness, it's all the criteria that the NRL are seeking but also us from the performance department. How did you sleep? How are you feeling? That triggers red flags for for conversations and to elicit a corridor conversation with people about how they're feeling. And that could be anything from pressure with money, with selection, feeling unwell, anything at all. We're normal people. We're the same as everybody else. We have the same stresses and and issues that you do at home. I think the thing was getting used to the day-to-day. And until we recently got some floor mats to put outside of our gym, our pool, our dojo area that I described, our coaching office and our medical, we had to take our shoes on and off at the entrance to every venue. You have dirty areas and clean areas. And you cannot wear a dirty pair of footwear in a clean area. So at the door to everywhere that you would find 30, 40 pairs of shoes. And then when you walk inside the door, you find the same amount again. So each player, coaching staff, myself, ranging from boots to shoes, had four or five pairs of footwear strewn around the facility. And you literally take them off at the door, walk in and put the other ones on, wear them while you're inside, take them off. Now we have a a cleanser that we walk through and a spray that we use. And even that has eased things considerably, even though it seems like a minor thing. But when you're taking your shoes on and off 20 times a day, it's quite challenging actually, to be honest. So all those little things have been hard, but the players have been you know, really adept at just taking it on, taking it in their stride. Yeah, we've got to remind them and yeah, we have to remind them every day, but they do it and they do it without complaint. Yeah, hopefully more broadly people appreciate that and, and um, enjoying the product that's on the field. You talked before about the fact that there's um, the fences that have been put around the training and, and kind of the dojo site. How does that make everybody feel, you know, being, I suppose, in, inside that contained environment? Well, I think at first, Justine, it is a bit intimidating. It's a little bit threatening. As a club, we're very open to allowing people to come and sit down and watch our training sessions and uh, engaging with fans and supporters on special occasions and things like that. We encourage them to come and see or if they're visiting and they might get in contact with someone like myself and I tell them when we're training, they come and sit on the edge, they get a fist bump from the players and a photo and an autograph and none of that can happen at the moment. 
and that's that's certainly been challenging for the whole game but we hope that more broadly that people understand that this is for the greater good it's a government initiative and they're trying to keep everybody safe not just us they're trying to keep everybody the broader public safe as well from any risk as a result we have to minimize that contact that has been challenging it is hard and again we do have to remind the players every game please don't go to the fence line even if it's your family please don't make contact with any members of the crowd because we've come in through that assessment zone and we're inverted commas clean until we leave I think my my son really showed me what it meant for rugby league to get back on the television before the first game that that the community was able to come to he said to me do you think I can come to that first game and I went oh, well no I, I doubt that very much it's a very select amount of people that are going to go and he just, he just said I just want to go to a live sporting game like this look of absolute desperation on his face so I think you know, the work that the players are doing, you guys are doing to keep everybody COVID free so that we, we can see you playing on television. We can, you know, see you playing, you know, in front of us. Um, it's crucial to, to our psyche kind of thing. Without a doubt, Justine, he is not alone. And a shout out to him. Thank you. What's his name? Heath. Heath, if you're listening, mate, we'll definitely get you to a game. And once things have returned to normal... I'll get you in the dressing room post-game and, and we can definitely have a chat to a few boys. It might be a while, so hold your horses, but we'll definitely do it in the future, buddy. And we appreciate the support. And I think that's been a big adjustment too, is playing games with no people. Playing games with no fans is a real challenge for the players and it really changes the adaptation of you know performing in front of a crowd. I think hold that, JB, because we got you for a second episode and the second episode is really going to explore that playing, getting back to playing, getting back to fans, and we really want to want to really talk about that in depth. But I just heard the full-time siren. That is the full-time siren, Justine. So thanks, JB, for joining us for, for this episode, but you are going to stick around and, and join us for a second one as we deep dive a little bit further into the NRL Sea Eagles bubble. So we'll speak to you soon. This has been the Seagulls Community Corner Podcast, presented by Seagulls' major partner, URM, and recorded in the studios of Manly Media partner, ASCII Live Media. You can follow the Seagulls on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, as well as LinkedIn. For more episodes and other official Seagulls podcast channel series, head to seagulls.com.au forward slash podcast. This has been an ASCII live media production for the Manly Warringah Seagulls official podcast channel.